Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. New episodes every two weeks. Find Historical Blindness on most podcast players and platforms. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. You know, every so often I have this realization that, uh, holy crap, I'm old, and one of those moments came recently when I got very excited when you made homemade bran muffins. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, you're not the only one. I'm super excited to use our new cookware as well. It's it's so nice, and I'm so excited about it, and it works so well. And I mean, the whole the entire time that we've been together, which is like, what, 12 years, something mm-hmm. like that, um, we've been using cookware that was gifted to me by my ex-fiance's mom yeah so i mean it was time for an upgrade yeah yeah. they had seen better days Um, i think you're becoming a bit too attached to your new uh cookware because uh the other night i was i was making an omelet you guys and i had to heat up a little bit too too hot i almost said too loud Mm -hmm. i had to heat up too loud and uh part of the egg burned onto the pan and Mm -hmm. cat suggested that I apologize to the frying pan. I mean, it, it wasn't just that you, that you burned that it was that you insinuated that it was the pan's fault. <laughs> that was <laughs> okay. That's that's the read you got from it. Okay, all right. Uh, well, that's fair then. Sure, sure. So. Well, um, should I, I? I tell you what. I will buy it something nice before the next time I use it. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Yeah, though that's not how you apologize to things. And it's that how just... I love, sweetie, <laughs> by buying gifts for cookware. Okay, I'm going to tell you a story, and you're going to think that I'm making this up or that it's maybe a legend or uh-huh. just a fairy tale or something, but sure. this is true. It actually happened. It is factual. I'm talking about the Beast of Gervadam. Its first appearance, its first recorded attack, I should say, was in the early summer of 1764. 
A 14-year-old shepherdess named Marie-Jeanne Boulet uh, was tending her flock in the eastern part of Gévaudan in France. Wow, this is very Frenchy. It's very French indeed. Um, she described the creature like this. It was, quote, like a wolf, yet not a wolf. Okay. It was stalking her cattle. But when the bulls charged the creature, it retreated a little bit. It kept this creature at bay for a bit, but then the creature attacked a second time and was driven off for good by the bulls. But soon after that, a 14-year-old was killed near the village, and witnesses described the creature that attacked her as a wolf-like creature, but not a wolf. But it was, not a wolf. No, it was much larger. It was described by most to be the size of a calf or even a small horse. Hmm. Its head was elongated, according to eyewitnesses, kind of uh, shaped like a greyhound, but with a flattened snout, pointy ears, a wide snarling mouth, and a very wide barrel chest. It was also reported that the tail was much longer than a wolf's tail would be normally, and it had a very prominent tuft at the end of the tail. Okay, so you said it was French. Yeah, well, yeah. Is it possible that it's a jubocabra? <laughs> wow. Um, <clears throat> no? The color of its fur was described as tawny or rust, but on its back there were some distinctive black markings, like streaks. Its underbelly had a white heart-shaped pattern on it. Kind but the, of like a painted dog? Kind of. Okay. But the biggest thing that people commented on was its size. So into the fall and winter, the attacks continued. The beast would not only attack livestock, but began preying on children Oof. that tended the livestock. And then occasionally they would pick off a man or an adult woman if they were alone walking on a road somewhere. There were so many attacks that they started thinking maybe there was more than one creature. They had never seen anything like this. And hysteria began to set in, as you can well imagine. Sure. Some contemporary accounts suggest that there were a pair of creatures, and some said that they had seen two walking together. Others said they saw one, but it had pups. But most people thought that was just the hysteria because there had only been one, well, there had only been confirmed sightings of one creature. Okay. On January 12th, 1765, a group of eight men were attacked by this creature. They quickly formed a tight group and were able to drive it away. Okay. And this got the attention of King Louis XV. That's when he got involved. He sent First Captain Duhormel to the uh, region to hunt down this creature. But what hampered him was that he had to rely on locals for support as guards. And most of those people were simple farmers or shepherds. And several times he had the beast in its sights, but due to the incompetence of the people that were working around him, mm -hmm. uh, he would miss his opportunity. So they didn't catch the croissant chupacabra? No, okay. no, they did not. King Louis XV became frustrated and sent two professional wolf hunters, as well as a support team to help the first captain finish the job. And But months went by with no success. The attacks continued. Now it's June, in fact, the 22nd of June, 1765. Francois Anton, who was the king's lieutenant of the hunt, arrived at the village. On or about September 20th, he killed a large gray wolf. This wolf was over five feet long mm. and weighed about 130 pounds. 
He said in all of his experience, he had never seen a wolf this large. He believed that this could have been the beast that caused so much damage. The animal was also identified by one of the survivors. He said, yeah, that, that's the one that attacked us. Antoine was uh, hailed as a hero. But the colors don't seem to match. Yeah, that is exactly right. Okay. Now, this was an unusually large wolf, and it did have a double set of dew claws, which made it a hereditary malformation. So, you know, it was a mutant, technically a mutant wolf. But as you said, the colors weren't right. But for a while, the village was safe, or at least they thought they were. Then on December 2nd, two young boys aged 12 and 6 were attacked by the beast. The beast tried to carry off the 6-year-old boy, but the 12-year-old was able to fend it off. Shortly after that, more attacks, more sightings. The beast seemed to have no fear of the cattle at all and was slowly developing no fear of man. It's been said that as many as a dozen or more deaths occurred directly attributed to this beast over a two-year period. Wow. So now it's 1767, and on June 19th, a local hunter named Jean Castel shot a beast at the slopes of Mount Moucher, and the attacks immediately stopped. The creature's body was brought into the castle of Marquis d'Apchier, and a Dr. Belanger, who was a surgeon, performed the necropsy. In his post-mortem report, which is known as the Marin Report and was transcribed by a notary, a lot of alarming things were discovered. Upon opening the animal's carcass, the animal's stomach contained the remains of the last victim. Okay. The animal was reported to be at least six feet long, or what we would refer to as six feet. And the descriptions given by eyewitnesses seemed to be very consistent with what he discovered. His report said, quote, this animal which seems to us to be a wolf, but extraordinary and very different by its figure and proportions of the wolves that we see in this country. This is what's been certified by more than 300 people from all over who came to see this thing. So basically he's saying, it looks like a wolf, mm-hmm. kind of, but not, no wolf we're aware of. And we brought 300 people over here to look at it. And they all say, no, we've never seen anything like this. So for generations, most people assumed that this was some sort of an oversized mutant or hybrid wolf. Okay. Or perhaps another type of canid. But there were other theories as well. Some said it was a giant wolf. Others suggested it was a lion. A lion? Yeah. It wasn't a lion. Others suspected a Eurasian wolf or an armored war dog or some kind of prehistoric predator that may have survived or perhaps a wolf dog hybrid or maybe a werewolf. Of course, you knew that had to be thrown into the pot. Sure. Today, we can look at the evidence because this is a well-documented case Mm -hmm. and there is an autopsy or a necropsy report. We can look at this. And experts today seem to think that perhaps the answer that matches the descriptions given of this creature, the closest description of it would be a striped hyena. Now, striped hyenas were not native to France, so it would have looked really unusual to the local people. And how it got there could be explained this way. It's native to parts of northern and uh, eastern Africa. It could have been that someone traveling in that area brought one back as a pup thinking, hey, this is going to be a cool pet. And then when it got too big to manage, they released it. That happens all the time. We have 
I, I read somewhere there are something like 40,000 pythons mm. in Florida alone because people just release their pets and it's destroying the Everglades. Yeah, I can't think of any situation where releasing a an animal that you had as a domesticated pet is a good idea. No. Never, never a one. Now, a spotted hyena is the largest member of the hyena family. Adults can be can get to be close to six feet in body length, and that doesn't count its tail, which is 12 to 15 inches long. Its shoulder height is more than three feet. Just at the shoulder, it has an elongated skull and a big, broad barrel chest. The color of the fur varies greatly and changes with age. Usually, it's a grayish brown or a yellowish brown. I didn't realize that they would be that big, though. They can be huge in comparison. It does have stripes, like the eyewitnesses said, Mm -hmm. and it has a distinctive spot on its belly and throat and chest. It also has a luxuriant mane along its back to the base of the tail, which makes it look even larger. Its tail is much fuller and quite different than a typical wolf. Sure. And its body width is much larger than a typical wolf's would be. Here's a picture of one. It's a beautiful creature. (gasps) Oh, my goodness. But look at this and picture it being six feet long, not counting the tail, which adds another foot. Strikes a pretty imposing figure, doesn't it? With the, with the hair standing up on the back of it, that's got to be love him. terrifying, though, for somebody who sees it, you know, killing a six-year-old. And they're still, like, moving around in, on the African continent? Yes. There's, there's, they're still doing well? Yes, they're doing well. That's good. Except for that one that left to go to France eating a toddler. He didn't just do it because he was, did. you know, feeling yeah. fancy. So if you're a citizen in a small French village in the mid-16th century and you've never seen a striped hyena, and let alone a particularly large one, it's pretty easy to think that this is some sort of a monster. Yeah. I mean, I assumed this was a cryptid story. Very real event and a provable creature. Le bête du Chevaudan. The beast of Chevaudan. My source material, Ripley's, believe it or not, history.com and Wikipedia. Yeah, I think that if I had never seen this thing before in my life and then I saw one that was six or that appeared to be six or seven feet long and looked like it was maybe five feet tall with its mane, I would uh, shit my 16th century trousers. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is... Well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? 
Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. And now, that thing in the middle. Here's something to bear in mind next time you're walking through New York City. The walk buttons at an intersection do not actually trigger a walk light. The light changes are controlled by computers, and the buttons are simply placebos for pedestrians. Alice sent us an email, curator at theboxofoddities.com. Cat! About a month ago, I also went through a phase of burping and like blowing through my teeth, making a hissing sound. What? <laughs> I had no idea until I would do it. I've stopped, thank God. Oh. But I've developed a tick saying, fuck you to any object I drop. <laughs> Stay freaky. Yeah, I've had that one for a while. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you overcame that. Uh, it gives me hope for myself <laughs> because I am really hating myself right now. Uh, we had a message from M on the Freaks group. I highly doubt that Kat or JG will read this. I don't know why you would doubt that because we read everything. Uh, but I was listening to Box 472 where JG talks about seeing something when he wakes up from a coma. Yeah. What if it was like a Grim Reaper kind of thing coming to collect the other little boy's soul or spirit because you said he passes into the bed next to you? Just a thought I had while listening to the episode. Yeah, I've, I've often wondered that myself. If it was like, I don't know, the angel of death, the Grim Reaper, mm. or uh, but it seemed to be focused on me. Yeah, well, probably because it was coming from your brain. Who knows what kind of medication I was on. <laughs> right. But it was so real, you guys. Even to this day, it's just so real in my mind. Sandy writes to us, my husband and I lived in a three-bedroom house we shared with roommates. Our room was located on the right side of the house, across from the, room, the roommate's daughter. In the early mornings, I tended to use the bathroom, which is located about four feet away from the bedrooms. Okay. Out of my bedroom, I have to make a left and then a right into the bathroom, mind you. Down the hall, we always leave a lamp on. One morning, I'm doing the zombie walk towards the bathroom, and I almost bump into a shadow figure. I'm 5'3", this shadow was about 5'5", five five. more solid than shadow, but I can still see the glow of the living room lamp through it. This zombie was wide awake, almost touching a shadow figure. I quickly hauled ass to the bathroom and stayed in there as long as I could. I, I do that anyway. Mm. When I finally came out, the hallway was clear. I ran to my room and couldn't go back to sleep. I told my husband about it and he just laughed and he told me, that I watch too many ghost hunter shows. Okay, well, you know, I don't necessarily uh, believe in like shadow people or whatever, but I also do not support dismissing your wife's concerns. Okay, but she goes on to say, Okay. And then it happened to him. Ha! 
He's not laughing anymore, LOL. We just watched The Watcher last night. Creepy. Uh, yeah. And it a lot of it dealt with that exact thing, which is everyone around this woman dismissing her concerns over and over and over again. And I don't like it. We commented on that movie as we were watching it last night that it reminded us of an old um, Alfred Hitchcock movie yeah. because it was just this slow burn of suspense yeah. and tension. I can definitely see how it wouldn't be for everyone. Like some people might just get bored because there are a lot of kind of slow parts and it is in Romanian, you know, so it's <laughs> not always easy to follow. But um, if if you stick with it, it's real good. I liked it a lot. Yeah, we found it on Shudder. Shudder! Okay, sorry. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, I I guess that's a point. (laughs) So the podcast is called Big Picture Science, and you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. Please don't listen to this podcast while operating heavy machinery because, you know, you couldn't hear the stories. This is The Box of Oddities. Okay, hold on to your pants because this is a ride. I'm just getting hydrated for it. Okay, I'm ready. Trigger warning, this is a true crime story. Frank Hilly had enlisted in the U.S. Navy and wrote to his high school sweetheart, Audrey Marie Frazier, throughout. When Frank returned, he worked in the shipping department at a foundry in Anniston, Alabama. In 1951, when he was 18, he and Audrey married. Audrey had been a very spoiled only child. She was voted as prettiest girl in junior high when she was 14 years old, which I think is gross. (laughs) A year after the two married, they welcomed their son, Michael, to the world. Marie gave birth to a daughter, Carol Hilly, in 1960. Now, Marie was also employed as a secretary. They were both employed, but they did struggle financially because Audrey had an eye for the finer things in life. She was a lady that liked to spend a lot of money. According to locals, she was very meticulous in her dress and she rubbed elbows with like the higher ups in the town. She wanted to get up there on the social ladder. Okay. And so to her, that meant the nicer dresses, mm-hmm. having the house look just so, blah, blah, blah. The money thing caused problems, though, as it absolutely will. Uh, they were known to have public spats, and Frank started drinking pretty heavily. Adding to the lack of overall chill in the household, Audrey didn't seem to get along with her daughter very well. They disagreed on most things, and Carol felt that her mother didn't much like her. Also, Audrey was unfaithful. 
She frequently engaged in sex with her bosses in exchange for money or better performance evaluations. Okay. So it's 1975, and Frank and Mike began suffering a mysterious illness. And doctors said it was probably just a stomach flu, but, you know, things aren't going great in the Hilly household. One day, Frank returns home early due to his illness and walked in to find Audrey in bed with her boss. Frank visited his doctor complaining of nausea. Now, this is probably because of the illness, not from the infidelity, but I bet that made him nauseous, too. I'm sure it did. And again, he was diagnosed with a viral stomach ache. Now, Mike, now an ordained minister, is living in Atlanta, and he's doing much better. But Frank reached out to him about Audrey's infidelity, Mm -hmm. which is not cool, I think, Mm -hmm. um, to Mm -hmm. be like, hey, son, let's talk about your mom banging around. (laughs) Even as an adult, I don't think it's appropriate to talk to your children about that. Anyway. Frank's condition persisted, but it didn't seem to be a stomach bug. Marie found him wandering around the yard in his underwear late one night, absolutely incoherent. So he was admitted to a hospital where tests indicated a malfunction of the liver and doctors determined he had infectious hepatitis. But treatments were not working, and Frank deteriorated. His face became ashy, his eyes were red and bloodshot, and he ended up passing away on the morning of May 25th. An autopsy was performed, and it found there was swelling of the kidneys and lungs, bilateral pneumonia, and inflammation of the stomach. Now, Frank had maintained a moderate life insurance policy that his widow redeemed for $31,000, but it hardly covered the debt that they had had. And as time went on, Audrey was not doing well financially. So now it's 1979, and the family is doing the best they can. Marie was helping Carol get ready for senior prom when suddenly her daughter was overcome with nausea. Carol began experiencing stomach troubles and was admitted to an emergency room several times. Now, this is very upsetting because it's very similar to what happened to her dad and ended up taking his life. Even worse, Carol began experiencing numbness in her extremities, but the hospital was unable to diagnose any specific disease. So Carol's physician brought in a psychiatrist because he thought that maybe it was psychosomatic. Okay, well, that would be understandable because you know, her father had passed. It was traumatic in, in the way that he died. Uh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I guess. You know, women, they're hysterical. So right around this time, Frank's relatives are like, wait, isn't this kind of weird? But Carol's physician said she was suffering from malnutrition and vitamin deficiencies and They suggested that maybe she was suffering from heavy metal poisoning. Well, the next day, Audrey had Carol discharged from the hospital. The following day, she was then admitted to University of Alabama Hospital. And it was right around this time that Audrey was arrested for passing bad checks. She cannot catch a break. And Frank's family is still talking about this situation. They're like, we think it's really, really weird that suddenly Carol is having these symptoms and it's unexplained. And Frank had these symptoms. And at first, those were unexplained as well. Yeah, it seems unlikely that this is this is just an innocent coincidence unless whatever Frank had was hereditary. Right. But then Frank's family was like, wait. Wasn't Audrey giving him some sort of injections when he was sick? Mm. And 
Hasn't Audrey been giving Carol injections? Okay. Keep in mind, Audrey also told Carol to make sure not to mention these injections to the hospital staff Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because she said that they were to treat her nausea and they'd be given to her by a registered nurse friend and she didn't want her registered nurse friend to get in trouble. So to be real quiet about it, don't tell anyone. So when Frank's family brought this up to the hospital and the staff was like, yeah, we didn't give her anything, uh, they went to the police with the information. Carol was found to have high levels of heavy metals in her blood, and they discovered it was arsenic. Forensic tests on Carol's hair revealed arsenic levels ranging from over 100 times the normal level close to the scalp to zero times at the end of her hair shaft, indicating that she had been given an increasingly larger dose of arsenic over a period of four to eight months. That's remarkable that we can determine those sorts of things. Right? Police also learned that Mer- Audrey had just taken out a $25,000 insurance policy on her daughter. Mm-hmm. Police were then like, okay, well, let's dig up Frank. Hmm? They suspected that it was the same case with him. And it was found that Frank Hilly had suffered from chronic arsenic poisoning. Oh, my God. He had been given arsenic for months prior to his death. For $31,000? In life insurance? Yeah. That was $1975. Oh, well, there. Okay. Well, that was worth it. Luckily, Audrey was already in jail for writing those bad checks, remember? So it was super easy to arrest her on October 9, 1979 for the attempted murder of her daughter. What about Frank, though? We're getting there. The Anniston, Alabama police found another vial in her purse that was in her possession and... Testing revealed the presence of arsenic there, too. Two weeks later, Frank Hilly's sister found a jar of rat poison in their home. Mm -hmm. So they concluded that that's what she had been using. So now it's November, and Audrey was released on bail while they awaited trial. So she checked into a local motel under an assumed name and then disappeared, leaving a note stating that she'd been kidnapped. Or someone left a note saying she'd been kidnapped. Probably well, she didn't leave her own note. That would be... That's, uh, <clears throat> again, a remarkable coincidence. So weird. On January 11, 1980, she was indicted in absentia for her husband's murder as well. Now, during the course of the investigation, authorities came to suspect that Audrey had poisoned numerous people through the years. Both her mother and her mother-in-law had significant, though not fatal, traces of arsenic in their systems when they died. Hmm. They also uncovered that the remains of Sonia Gibson, an 11-year-old neighbor who had died, had arsenic in her system. But it was a quote-unquote normal amount of arsenic. Uh, But Gibson was one of many children who had fallen ill after drinking lemonade at the Hillies' home. Okay. What? Okay. She's obviously extremely impaired. Two police officers also reported coming down with nausea and stomach cramps after drinking coffee that Audrey had offered them. So she just got a kick out of poisoning people. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't seem like it mattered if it benefited her in any way or not. Yeah. It was just a thrill for her to poison people. So now Audrey's on the lam. Now let's go to Florida. We're meeting a man named John Homan. And he meets a lady named Robbie Hannon. And they live together for about a year. And then they get married. And... Robbie took John's last name. So now her name is Robbie Homan. 
Together, they moved to New Hampshire. Now, in the summer of 1982, Robbie tells her husband, John, that she has to go and visit her sister because she has a very rare blood disorder and she needs to go see a doctor near her sister, Terry. But he can't come with her. Suspicioso. What? No. Not long after that, Robbie's sister, Terry, called John and was like, hey, Robbie died, uh, but don't come here because I donated her body to science. Of course she did, because that's the kind of sister that Robbie would have. Right. So then Terry went to New Hampshire to meet with John and she submitted an obit for her deceased sister. And John was like, cool. Now, Terry looked very different from her sister. Very different. Yeah, I was going to ask if they were twins. Uh, they Well, no, because Terry had different colored hair and she was uh, thinner. Oh, okay. So. Mm-hmm. Now, even though I said, like, John was cool about this, his friends and his family and his co-workers were all like, John, <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. So investigators checked into the obituary and they had a really hard time substantiating anything about it, including the existence of Robbie Hannon. They also couldn't verify the existence of Terry. So they brought her in for questioning. That's some good police work there. Yep. (laughs) During that questioning, you guessed it, she admitted that she and Robbie were both Audrey Marie Hilly. Huh. I know you didn't see that coming. I didn't see it coming. No, I know. No. <laughs> I'm sitting here with my jaw agape. So it's now June 1983, and Audrey was convicted of Frank's murder and Carol's attempted murder in Anniston. She received life in prison for that, plus another 20 years for attempting to kill Carol. But about four years later, in February of 1987, Audrey was given a furlough from prison to visit her husband, John. This goes on and on. They checked into a motel together, but then Audrey disappeared. Wait a minute. Now, John is still on the hook here. Oh, yeah. He's in. Okay. Yep. I don't know if he's like totally into Robbie or Terry now. Mm. Maybe it's... Maybe it's both. I don't know. Whatever. Hard to say. But Audrey has disappeared once again. Mm Mm-hmm. A few days later, a woman coming home saw another woman on her porch appearing to try to break in. And so she went to the neighbor and they called police. And turns out it was Audrey on that woman's porch trying to break in because she'd been living in the woods and it was very cold out and she was suffering from hypothermia. She ended up having a heart attack and dying. Shut up. Are you kidding me? She was 53 years old. Well, that's a full life. <laughs> that was an amazing roller. Co- oh, wait, is it over yet? It's over. Okay. It's- that was an amazing, ro- because I thought there were many points where the story could have ended, but then it goes on. It does go on. That's incredible. I want to thank Chris Sutton, who suggested that topic. Uh, so interesting to read about. Again, it's terrible that these crimes were committed Mm. but so amazing how many people in this story were like wait a minute yeah i'm not buying it Mm -hmm. but yet a lot of people bought it yeah a lot of people did i got my information from the cinemaholic the daily news murderpedia snapped and of course wikipedia and if you've got a suggestion for a story, you can email us at any time, curator at theboxofoddities.com. Indeed you can. 
You can also send us suggestions on where we should go and visit when we're in Barcelona, Spain. Oh my gosh. This is the biggest trip I think that we've ever taken. And I'm so excited and there's so much to see and do. And I just want all the suggestions so I don't miss anything. Yeah, we've been planning this for two years, two years planning and saving for this trip. And it's pretty exciting. Find this. Yeah, I, I I starred this email. Um, comes from Steve, Cat and Jethro. Recent episode, you said you're coming to Spain. I suspect you're on a tight schedule, but I wanted to offer you a place to stay Aww. in Valencia, if you wish. Well, that's that is lovely. We're going to be in Barcelona. We will be in Valencia, but it's uh, I think that's just a, a cruise port call for us. Yeah, right? it's so. just a little quick stop. Yeah, but thank you. That's really sweet. I love that. And we love you guys. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at facebook.com slash box of oddities podcast on twitter at box of oddities and instagram at box of oddities podcast copyright 2022 all rights reserved